Today's special guest is Duncan Reed, Business Development Manager at Trimble and Chair of Think BIM. Today we gaze into the future and discuss the impact of robots, automated vehicles, digital twins and all things data and what impact that will have on the construction industry. Technology can have a transformative impact on how productive and sustainable our industry can be when used properly. And that ultimately is the key message with tech and what you'll hopefully get from today's uh, podcast and more broadly innovation uh, about the importance of understanding the problem you're trying to solve and if it's a problem worth solving. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember to like, subscribe and share uh, with your colleagues and friends and do get in touch if you'd like to discuss any other topics covered in more detail. Enjoy. Duncan, welcome to uh, today's episode of Innovation Deciphered. It's great to have you here and to talk about all things robots, tech, data. We'll see where it goes, but ultimately I guess it's about what the future holds for the industry and how we can achieve some of the, the goals we're setting ourselves as an industry in terms of sustainability, productivity gains, cost reductions, all those things I guess we've been talking about for decades but maybe now we're finally somewhere that we can achieve some of these things. Sounds like a good plan, yeah, definitely. So you are immersed in the world of um, cool toys, uh, some might say, uh, but yeah. really interesting uh, leading edge stuff uh, in robotics, in data, in technology, in uh, your sort of day-to-day -day life at Trimble, but also all the things you do with Think BIM, uh, building smart and everything else that you uh, give your time up for. Uh, what's the most exciting thing for you at the moment that you're seeing in terms of that development? So the most exciting thing I saw, which was last November, out in the desert in Vegas, was a fully autonomous 20-ton excavator. So it was digging a trench, it was tracking back, it was bottoming out the trench, tipping the spoil out completely autonomously. No driver in sight. And no one on a remote control at the no, other end or? being programmed with the software and then just set to run. That is so pretty cool. You can do this now. Even then, there are still bits and pieces it can't do. Um, as a colleague only pointed out a couple of days ago, yes, it can dig the trench and move the spoil, but it can't actually put the spoil into a lorry to take the spoil away. Right, okay. And it's like, oh yeah, there's a whole load of other complications on there. Um, and I think the thing that was really interesting with that was not only was this a fully autonomous excavator, but this was just an excavator that had come off a production line and the technology had been applied to it. Mm -hmm. So I suppose where you have, um, where the world has been talking about digital twins and well actually 95% of our assets are already there and we're only building one, 2% a year, this does mean that new technology can be applied to, applied to the existing fleets. You're not just having to go and buy new stuff all the time. We can actually upgrade existing technology to make it more useful for the, the world, to make it more sustainable, to make it more efficient, whatever going forward. And I guess in terms of uh, breaking down barriers to stop people embracing the technology, if it's something that can add and sort of you know augment what we're doing now rather than being something completely new that someone's scared of it should be easier for someone to pick up and use yes i mean again in that case with autonomy there has been semi-autonomous control on machines for many many years 
drivers are aware of that, they understand it. Yes, they might see a risk of, well, what does that mean in terms of my role going forward? But actually, you look at some of the options that uh, organisations like Caterpillar with Cat Command have developed that allow an operator to just dial in remotely from an, an operator's chair to a machine anywhere in the world. So again, three years ago, sat in Birmingham in HS2's offices, drove a bulldozer in Arizona. It was three o'clock in the morning, but the dozer was still driving. Um, the really interesting one with that was that they were saying they've now realised that actually you aren't constrained with the design of the chair, so you could make this wheelchair accessible. Mm -hmm. So suddenly the industry becomes accessible where you can never get somebody with mobility issues into a dozer, that actually you can get them just wheeled up to a chair and up to a control unit, and then they can drive a machine and dial into it anywhere in the world. So suddenly there's all sorts of really poss interesting possibilities like that. And that's sort of really sort of exciting and interesting, but that's not new per se. That's sort of, you know, learning from uh, the army and what they're doing with drones and essentially it's Absolutely, the same. yes. And again, some of it requires um, technology to improve and, and uh, work around in a better way of supporting it. So yes, you could remote control a dozer probably quite a while ago, but until you've got internet speeds that the latency, the yeah. lag was sufficiently small that when you stopped the machine in your chair, it stopped wherever it was in the world, it wasn't a approvable technology. So there are really interesting things where you take something and take it to the next level. Or in the case of something like Boston Dynamics with Spot the Robotic Dog that everybody's seen, um, for several years, yes, it was walking around all the trade shows and the fairs and the conferences and it was like, okay, that's great, but what do you do with it? Yeah, yeah. It's now got to the point that there are some practical use cases coming in and people are starting to see value and we've got our customers doing some great things with them. Um, in particular, um, what we're really proud of with our use of um, Boston Dynamics Spot is we have an agreement with them such that we are sharing the technology and the coding so that whereas uh, lots of organisations can put a payload onto Spot and drive it around and go and do something, ours is integrated into the single controller. So the task and the payload is operated with the same device that the dog is operated with. You can run it on fully autonomous missions in that respect and do some really cool stuff that way. So again, it's um, there's great things coming out. What are the use cases? Mm -hmm. They might take several years to come to fruition. And then kind of, right, what does it really do and what's the value it can offer as opposed to somebody else's version or whatever, perhaps. And what do you think is the, the greatest barrier to sort of embracing it? So obviously people are still trying to work out the value case. Is that because rightly or wrongly people see a lot of this as expensive? Yeah, I think there is still a whole load of behavioural change, which has been probably a common subject in a lot of your podcasts and is a big discussion for the industry that we have. We sit in this BIM bubble and we're all really passionate about moving the industry forward, but getting the message out of making it business as usual to the rest of the industry, even if it's only small steps and not, hey, look, there's a cool robot that costs quite a lot of money, but does deliver value to actually, there are small steps that you can take to improve your data flows that ultimately may result in actually you do one day go and deploy spot and it goes, goes and does the survey work for you or it does the checking or the operations such that you don't have to so you become more efficient in the way you're working. Again an example specifically with spot with the um, Innovate UK project that the BRE and BAM have been doing, um, they deployed spot on a project in the Shetland Islands which meant that they could go and do surveys with somebody remotely operating the mm -hmm. device in mm -hmm. London 
that saved a five-day trip for a surveyor to go out to the Shetlands from London, do the work and come back again. Spot, just go and set him off. Two yeah. hours later, you've got the data. So massive savings there in value. And there will be lots of other occasions where you think actually just not having to drive around site mm. gives you value. So again, and a lot of that then links up to cloud applications and use the use of cloud computing. So again, we have back to our machine control and the existing technology we're using now, that's all run off cloud solutions. So somebody hasn't got to drive up and down the site, putting a memory stick into every excavator to update the design and the risk that they might then fall off or get run over by it, God forbid, or whatever, when they're doing that operation, they can just send the right design off to the latest, the latest design off to the machine drivers. They can then check on a dashboard, okay, that driver's not using the latest design, ring them up, why aren't you? I've got this problem, that, all right, okay. Mm. Or, oh, guy, fine, stop the machine, update the design, off we go again, we're all working. So again, those productivity gains from connectivity, from using the data that underpins it all. And there's still a lot of data that needs to underpin all of this. Yeah, there is. And I guess when you start bringing all that together, the the data, the models, and sort of the, the robotics side of things, you know, you mentioned Spot, you've got, um, you're showing off the, the HP one as well, that little printer robot. Yeah. Um, when you bring all these together, you should improve accuracy and get rid of some of the, um, the constant, you know, We'll get it right first time, you know, they get it right initiative. Yeah, things absolutely. Like that. You know, talk about a 17 billion pound sort of issue with rework and stuff like yes. that. If you can become more accurate, why wouldn't you? You, know, yeah. you talk about value case, there it is. Yeah, and, and, that's a, yeah. and that's fundamentally profit. So actually contracting yeah, yeah. firms, and we're hearing horrible stories in the news every day of companies mm. that are struggling in the economic climate we're in, that actually if you can improve your profitability, then it means you will still remain there in business. And that's really interesting and really useful for the industry. Um, just where you mentioned the HP site print, one of the interesting ones, talking to a potential customer on that, um, HP one of our partners, our technology through robotic total stations allow you to position that machine accurately, was talking about it actually in demolition use case, of actually knowing exactly where you were in an existing building, so you put the hole in the right place. Mm. And you think, oh yeah, actually, you could very easily get lost in an existing structure, not know exactly where you are. These things apparently do happen. Mm. That if you know with accuracy where you are in the structure, where you need to stitch that hole with diamond drilling or whatever, that's a real value to you, rather than just always thinking about, oh, it's really cool, I'm a new building, I can go and spray down the lines and say this is dry line partition specification five, and then you again remove that area of rework issues that people know what they're supposed to be doing in the in the new structures as well and that's where so you know innovation in general and technology you know de-risking uh, what you're doing de-risking projects fundamentally and yeah. is a key thing so we've sort of talked about you know a lot already <laughs> in sort of 10 minutes got gone around the houses um we've talked about uh, sort of sustainability being sort of one of the key drivers and uh, we've talked about how you know, just sort of you know re moving rework, be more productive will obviously help reduce carbon. Um, but do you see anything with what you're um, involved with in terms of material as well, innovation in materials, sort of removing? I mean, you're a civil engineer, aren't you? By yes. trade and background, yes. so you love concrete and steel, absolutely, <laughs> yes. um, which is seen as sort of you know the devil's work in times, <laughs> right yeah, or wrong. No, uh, uh, yeah, and uh, I think. Yeah, this construction industry has to hold its hands up to the fact that yes, we're huge amounts of carbon emission from the industry, from our activities, people need products or whatever. Um, I think 
where Trimble certainly comes as a technology provider is allows designers to be more efficient, um, but also to understand the context of their art, of their the decisions they're making. So going to the first point, um, just purely in terms of utilization rates of how hard are you making a structure work? Mm. I think that again, that is visible. Possibly industry has been slightly more conservative in the past as to what utilizations they would accept or go, yeah, that will be all right, when it's actually fairly low that perhaps we need to drive our designs. Whether that leads to more innovative solutions like printing materials, so it literally is the section size it needs to be at every point in the structure so that uh, you are really pushing the design to, uh, to its limits in a safe way. Um, but equally, again, with our design tools, you have the ability to actually see what the carbon effect of your design is. Mm. Um, and that you can do in the analysis tool. So you can go back to your customer and say, hey, you could do it this way or you can do it that way. The carbon impact of this one is this. The carbon impact of that one is something different. But that follows through with connectivity from the design software to the fabrication software that when the steel fabricator or the concrete contractor makes site-based decisions with the contractor on site, you can feed that back to the engineer and go, right, we think this is more efficient. Yeah, okay, it might mm -hmm. be, but actually the implications on carbon are X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. So we need to look at that application. So you've got that loop going in place to understand where you're at. I guess it's great that we're starting to uh, really embed the tools that allow carbon to be part of the conversation, to measure yes. what we're doing. And, and again, I suppose a bit like the maturity conversation with robotics, we're in a better position now that there are some more mature carbon calculation tools that are generally accepted by industry. And we're using the Institution of Civil Engineers um, set of data so that at least somebody can go, okay, yes, this is reliable third-party data rather than Trimble going, hey, we think it's this, so we're going to stick that number in. And everybody going, is it really? Are you sure? Where's the precedent for it? So, again, the, the wider industry had to kind of get to grips with it and come up with at least some standards and some data. And again, I suppose that comes into open standards and mm -hmm. open data sources that need to be in place so that everybody's working off a similar sort of toolkit or a similar benchmark. Exactly, and that, I think the open and the sharing is, is important. And hopefully we're into a stage where the, the maturity of the conversation that we're getting to with carbon is similar to health and safety now, where people are just open about, actually, it's for the greater good and better for me. Yes. I'm sharing what's happening. Yeah, definitely. And again, I think you can take that with existing assets. So you can do laser scans, whatever sort of mm. survey work you want to do, and then start to get the impact of that. I think I've, I've wondered now in the last few years where actually the analysis model might be more useful in the life cycle of an asset than the geometric model. Mm. Whilst we've all been running around looking at geometric models saying, well, you need to save that, you need to do this, that and the other, because it's there for the rest of the job. I think the way technology is moving so fast, if you look back 10 years of what we were doing and what we're doing now, could be five years, who knows, that somebody will just walk around with a mobile phone and it will create a geometrically accurate model of the structure. Mm -hmm. So why do I need to hold that data? Mm -hmm. The structure's physically there, I can save on data storage, the costs of that, and I'll just need the analysis model because it tells me actually how hard the asset's working, link it with some IoT sensors to see if it really is working as hard as the designer suggested, or whether, horrible phrase, sweat the asset or upgrade the asset, or even to the point as we are seeing, um, designer developers will come back and go, actually, I can stick another two stories on this building mm. and still not actually impact on the, impact on the rest of it. Mm. Again, I suppose you think in terms of 
the massive redevelopment in London that just continues and continues and continues, but you're hearing stories that they're running out of space to put more piles in the ground to support yeah. buildings. Well, if you put sensors on those piles and collect the data and yeah. know how hard that pile is working, you, maybe you can go, actually, I don't need to take the pile out or put a new one in. I can reuse the existing mm -hmm. pile give you some legal implications to cross, but we'll let the lawyers work that bit out. <laughs> but the data is there to say, actually, yes, this pile is competent, it's been working for 30 years, here's a full life cycle of data, even if it's only a data point once every six months or so, you don't need it every five seconds or something, it's not Formula One where you're trying to collect millions of points of data, but you've got that record that actually kind of warrants that pile. Is that that the piling contractor owns that? And they then kind of loan you a pile for its lifetime or does the owner own the building and own the pile and then recycle it a it, whole load of new conversations around sort of data in this respect which is uh, i think a conversation that we're moving to more and more because there's definitely a push to uh, sort of reuse and redevelop rather than you know, just pull it down and start again i think you know again going back to that maturity of carbon um, conversation yeah. you know strip it down uh, to the core and, and, and build out um, or strip down to frame uh, and build out is definitely becoming more and more prevalent uh, as people try and reduce their embodied carbon which is good yeah and, and there's places for both mm. but certain times yes obviously you do want to build something new but other times there is something that can be done to mm. a level with the existing assets that are there mm. so if uh, we talk more broadly about sort of uh, in innovation uh, as it were and, and people sometimes uh, so rightly or wrongly, I guess, depending on where they're sitting, uh, look at the way that they as an organisation can innovate is through um, digitising, through becoming, you know, uh, better at using technology. Often that leads to just buying stuff they don't use. And that makes me think of sort of the conversation we had when we were last together about this role that you sort of see yourself as having as almost a, a personal shopper and trying to understand yeah. uh, really, really what it is you're trying to do, which I think is a, an important conversation that is often missed. It's the, what are you trying to fix? Yeah, yeah, to contextualise that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my role within Trimble, I work in strategic accounts for our largest global customers. Um, and this means that the entire product portfolio of Trimble is available to them particularly global customers where software is available across the world or technology, whatever. So yes, it is a case of understanding and navigating what we have to offer to our customers that delivers value to them. And some of that may be iterative, the next version of the existing software they use because it's got functionalities that's better for their use case. Or it could be adjacencies of, well, you're using software X, did you know that then software Y gives you an improved workflow? Or it could be because of the breadth of Trimble's offer, so we work in construction, geospatial, agriculture and transportation, that it might be something that you're going to a main contractor and saying, we have a transportation and logistics business. Have you thought about the complexity of actually getting materials to your projects? We can help you with a suite of tools there. So um, it's understanding what might be a benefit. And I think... Uh, for me, I think the, the, the value that I can also bring is having spent 25 odd years in the industry first and then coming to software. I have a better idea of what those customers' use cases or pain points might be mm. to help to say to them, have you thought about this, have you thought about the other order? Yeah, I mean, when we talk to, uh, to, to, to our customers about sort of, you know, managing innovation and stuff, you know, one of the early things that you need to think about is what is your problem? You define the problem statement. Yes. Um, and understand is it is it a problem worth solving as well 
because um, it's yeah. very easy to and I'm in my personal life terrible at just finding something shiny and going yeah I want that without really thinking about does it add yeah. anything you know a bluetooth kettle that I've managed not to uh, buy <laughs> and a bluetooth coffee maker I've managed to avoid buying it but I see it and go yeah I'll have that yeah. <laughs> you know but yeah. what problem is that trying to solve? I, yeah it's really interesting because again that kind of starts to spin into the area where I traditionally support a UK BIM Alliance, now NEMA, um, and again, that business case of what's appropriate. Mm. And there's probably an argument with a lot of organisations on starting on their digital journey is just go away for 12 months and find out what data you've already got, because mm. you possibly don't know what departments in your business or people, even if they're not departments, are collecting or have that it might just be joining some dots together internally of the data sets in silos, using the buzzwords that we've been using for years to, to persuade people to change, actually exists. And then, again, to your point, in terms of actually, well, that problem you've got is because you can't get from A to B, but there is data at A and there is data at B, so we need to find what's the way to move that. And it could just be as simple as, let's put it on a shared drive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, the world would love to see everybody using ISO 19650 compliant common data environments, but there is places for all sorts of tools, and that is possibly your first step on a journey. Even just as I kind of, you know, almost jokingly, having a folder structure for your emails, having a folder structure on your C drive, on your laptop, just so you can find stuff. It's the, those first little steps between actually ending up with some really complicated numbering systems that actually mean that the data is machine readable to be able to find it in seconds rather than hours or weeks that it might otherwise we, take. Um, we, we aren't great at being, I don't think flexible is quite the right word, but you know it's got to be either perfect or nothing. So I think finding that appropriate, you know, before we started recording, you were talking about the 80%. You know, yes. If you're 80% right, that's better than what you were. And that's good enough and continue to improve Absolutely. from there. And I think, yeah, again, to your point in terms of what is the problem and is it mm. worth solving, if there is something you can do that's going to save you a massive amount, brilliant. If there's other things that might not, well, do we? Or we just stick it on the longer term plan of, at the moment, it's a bit harder, but hey, technology may come along, suddenly something new will come into the market or whatever. Again, I do wonder at times whether the kind of almost sort of fanaticism of absolutely totally structured data is at some point going to be overtaken by AI that just actually understands it and will do all the sorting for you. Mm -hmm. So humans can be as lazy as they are and just like <laughs> picture one, picture two, holiday one, holiday two, whatever. And the, the machines will then go, oh, well, all those pictures of Croatia, so I'll just put those together. Those mm -hmm. pictures I recognise are all Italy. I'll put them together. That's all concrete. I'll put it there. That's all stick. And it might be. Now, that possibly lets the industry off the hook, but it's another, again, kind of interesting dilemma of actually, you've got this huge unstructured data set, probably lots of businesses do. If you can find a way to safely expose it to some sort of AI that will then Mm. categorize it for you you might find some insights that are the insights that are there already you didn't even know oh definitely i mean we are um you know data rich knowledge poor is sort of a phrase i like to band about a lot you know because we measure everything but then do nothing with it yeah or we measure it sort of historically and then by the time we have the measurement it's sort of almost too late um you know being a qs or something i did a lot of yeah <laughs> um the that's a really interesting because, again, I was uh, coming down on the train this morning doing my prep work, so at least I look vaguely confident for this. 
um, was looking through some slides from uh, from from our business from Trimble, and uh, one of our customers was uh, quoted as saying, "I don't want to know the res to the football results on a Monday morning. Mm. That's no use to me. I want to know the, uh, the the results in real time." And you think, "Yeah, nobody would have an app, the BBC Sports app, that just told you on Monday what it was when the ga game was on Saturday." Um, even the newspapers, when my mum was reading football newspapers as, uh, when I was a kid, it came out on Saturday evening. You got it a couple of hours after the results. And <clears throat> we need to know that. But I think the powerful bit that could come just as the first steps with AI is just joining those two data sets together and getting some insights. I, mean, I laugh about that analogy because, and this will be a giveaway as to when we recorded this, I'm a Man United fan and I'd rather not know the okay, football results. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we're not talking about so football. Is this where we thinking. just go? Was it? Uh, oh, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll drink seven up later, shall we? Yeah, half <laughs> a seven up. Yeah. How many more times yeah. can we get that? Yeah. And will any of this make the final yeah, cut? Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but you, the AI stuff is an interesting one because obviously we are still, um, although it's sort of quieting down a little bit, ChatGPT is obviously sort of, you know, being banded around, talked about a lot, the whole open AI thing, Microsoft being Google's site embarrassment yeah. the other week when they um, sort of tried to launch theirs and it didn't work. Um, and there is both fear and excitement with AI and yeah. understand, does it help or take over? Yeah, and I think... There is probably a, a fear factor of what you see in the headlines and an, an unawareness of actually how much it's ubiquitously in the world already. Mm. And that you can't shut the door because the horse is well and truly bolted and probably gone off, found a herd of other AI horses and they're now on their third or fourth generation. So um, like all things, it, it's data for the common good. Another phrase that we used just before we started recording, it's understanding actually how it delivers value and it, and it is generally good rather than necessarily being um, less so or whatever but I think the other one that was interesting again from a while ago it was a bin for water event where um, some the team from the A14 Costains were talking they'd just started collecting daily data on a phone app um, from all of their staff on site and all the operatives or and started getting insights and there was some things that were blindingly obvious that you just think, oh yeah, well of course. And again, back to your football analogy, so we'll have to keep the score in because this is an important bit. <laughs> no. So they found out with the app that actually major concrete pours the day after a midweek football game were never as good on quality. <laughs> Which of course is blindingly obvious that why would it be? But actually, do you look at your programme in terms of sports fixtures? Should you? What does that mean? The other one, which caused great debate and we didn't get an answer to, was apparently the archaeologists were the most accident prone. Oh, really? And again, that's kind of like, I want to know why. I mean, there was a bit of, well, is it because they're least used to working on construction yeah, yeah. sites? My wonder was, well, actually, on construction sites, everybody's really keen to have flat surfaces. It's all clean mm. and clear, so trips and slips, whereas an architectural site is all over the yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. Planks and holes and bits of... Uh, but what were those accidents or whatever? So it, it then possibly triggers a whole load of other research to go and do. But just collecting some basic data like that, and there was other factors they were doing, of just kind of, how are you feeling today? Mm. All those sorts of things. You can start to get some trends because you've got enough people to make it a significant result. In and that I, that's data. the important thing. You get that first insight and then you do something with it. You yeah. sort of try to understand the root cause um, well, if it is that, you know, yeah. all archaeologists, are, are they just clumsy? Or is it sort of the site conditions and yeah. can you do something about it? But it's that understanding that first insight, the less you do the research, 
but there are probably lots of things that over our career we've kind of kind of I'm sure there's something yeah. about this and that you've got this sort of inkling yeah and if you can now run an AI because you've got some data or you can start to get to people to collect data or look at the data you've got because you might be able to start to infer things again if you think in terms of um, pumps and motors you put sensors on those but in most cases they're vibration sensors because they've done so many tests on these they know the exact profile of what the vibration is going to be if it hits this point that that rotor that pump whatever is about to fail in the next 10 10 weeks or five weeks whatever it might be so you can go in and make that um, pre-active proactive intervention to repair the pump or the motor it might be that there are data sets we've got that tell you other things. I mean, I don't know, don't know what they are, but there may be something that no. you can start to use to get better insight. And that, that gut feel, I mean, we call it a hunch. You know, it's the start of your innovation journey. You think there's something there, so you go and you know try and work out, well, what's the problem that hunch is sort of yeah. pointing me towards? And how can I do something then to try and test it, prove it, and maybe create something of value uh, at the end of it? Yeah. But most good innovation starts with a gut feel and a hunch. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's your experience, you know yeah. there's a problem somewhere. Um, I think that's us sort of running out of time. Um, so, uh, so one last question, I guess. So, what is the one thing in sort of you know trade shows and everything this year that you think we should all be sort of you know keeping an eye for, looking for, and you're excited about seeing? Because there won't be a twenty-ton excavator in the Excel Center. <laughs> no, no, there won't. I think, despite the conversations about AI solving everything, I think um, applications that make creating structured data easy and simple is mm -hmm. probably fundamentally what we need. I know we don't talk BIM levels anymore, that's very old hat, but fundamentally the industry needs to get a grip with what was BIM level one, structured yeah. data. Because if that structure is there, it just makes everything else easier. Mm. And I think so... I'm not sure that there is anything amazing sort of to really look out for. There will be iterations and different things and you think, oh, that's quite a good application. But I think fundamentally tools that make creating structured data simple. So like with any good building, don't forget how important your foundations are. Absolutely. Right back to the civil engineer again. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time today, Duncan. It's been great. Thank you. It's been fun.